So I want you to take your Bibles today, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 2, John's Gospel, chapter 2, and I want to speak to you on this subject, a glimpse of glory. The Gospel of John is a fascinating gospel account. It's, it's all about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. The stated purpose of this gospel is clearly articulated in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, where John wrote, therefore, many of the signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then John chapter 21, verse 24 and 25, a little addendum there at the end of the book. It says, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Oh, that's awesome, isn't it? Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle included eight miracles in this gospel. Eight miracles. Now, I believe if you total up all the miracles in all the gospels, it, it, it adds up to about 37, I think. But even all those 37 would not contain all the miracles that Jesus did during his three-year ministry. Today, we're going to examine the first miracle that Jesus performed, the very first miracle. So take your Bible, look at John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 11 verses today. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this incredible story that the Holy Spirit inspired John the Apostle to include in his gospel account. Lord, th this is the only gospel that contains this story. So this is a very, very important story about a very, very important first miracle that Jesus performed in his ministry. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would enable me to clearly articulate the meaning and the truth of this, of this great story, of this great miracle, and that you would use this story to prick our hearts and to do a work in our lives. I pray that nobody would walk out of this room today the way they walked in. I pray there would be a difference in our lives, a spring in our step if we're believers. And if we're not believers, that we would repent and believe in Jesus as the, the, the gospel author uh, talked about there in chapter 20. So, Lord, have your way in our lives. Let the Holy Spirit move freely among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the, the story begins... In John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let me read those two verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. 
And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, this reference to the third day refers to the third day after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel that we read about at the end of chapter 1 of John's gospel. By this time, Jesus has five disciples, only five. He doesn't have 12 yet. His ministry had just begun. Remember, John the Baptist baptized the Lord Jesus and declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there are five disciples now. There's Andrew, there's Peter, there is uh, John the Apostle who wrote this book, though he's never mentioned in this, in this gospel. And then there's Nathaniel and there's Philip, five disciples. And the Bible says that on the third day, they made their way to Cana of Galilee, which is about nine miles north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Now, presumably, Jesus and his, and his mom knew the, the wedding party at some level. Either they were friends or may, they may have been relatives at some level. So they go to this wedding, Mary, Jesus, and his disciples, and they're all invited. They didn't crash the wedding. They were invited, okay? And it's interesting that Mary took an active role in the wedding feast itself. We would call it the reception. I mean, she, she is sort of ramrodding the whole thing here. Now, Jewish weddings could last up to seven days. Seven days. Man, aren't you glad if you're a, a parent that you don't have to pay for a seven-day reception? Uh, Darlene and I had to pay for a, a, about a two- or three-hour reception. And uh, th those were, I didn't pay for Zach's. Tina's mom and dad paid for that. But I tell you, those can get expensive, right? Because, but imagine a seven-day wedding feast. Do you know who was responsible to pay for the wedding feast? It wasn't the bride's parents. It was the groom. The groom was responsible for making sure that there was plenty of food, to last up to seven days and plenty of wine to last up to seven days. In fact, the groom was featured prominently, not the bride. This is a Jewish wedding. The groom was responsible for everything. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus went to a wedding. Some people believe that Jesus is a cosmic killjoy, that, that Jesus is recluse. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was full of joy and he was full of life. And I want you to understand something, that the Bible says that when we get to heaven, if you're a believer, there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forever in the right hand of God. Don't think that heaven's going to be boring. Don't think that heaven's going to be a, 
a, a, a sad place. I'm telling you, it's going to be brimming with life. Life. Jesus said that he came to bring us eternal life and abundant life, and that will continue for all of eternity for the believer. Now look at verse 3. The Bible says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, that little statement, when the wine ran out, don't just read it flippantly. It's not like the groom could send someone to Walmart to buy up all the, the, the wine, their supply of wine, or, or go to Kroger and buy up their supply of wine. No, 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 no. That was not possible. For the year of the betrothal, there was a betrothal period, and then the wedding occurred. And during that year, it was the groom's responsibility to make sure that there, were, there was plenty of food and there was plenty of wine. In a shame-honor culture like the Middle East, to run out of wine was a colossal social faux pas. It's something you just didn't do. In fact, this disaster could lead to this couple being branded for the rest of their lives. Never get over it. A stigma would be attached to them. Now, the mother of Jesus inserts herself into this drama here. She says to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, have you noticed that our moms and wives have a unique language? It's called indirect communication. Okay? And you, look, I, I remember my mom saying to me, Chuck, your room's a mess. Now, you know what she was saying? Go clean that room up. Or... or or maybe your wife says, you know, that grass is getting a little tall. You know what she's really saying to you? Go crank the lawnmower and mow the yard. Indirect communication. And I think that we're getting a little vision of that indirect communication right here when Mary says to her son, son, they have no wine. They have no wine. Now, you got to remember, Mary knew who Jesus was, okay? Don't forget, Jesus had not done one single miracle yet, not a one. There's this myth out there that when Jesus was in Egypt, that he created little clay pigeons and he would wave his hand over them and they would fly, turn into birds and fly away, pigeons and fly away. That's a myth. This is the first miracle that Jesus will perform. But Mary knew him. You, you see, Mary could think back to when the angel came to her and said, Mary, you're going to have a son. But Lord, I, I, have, I haven't been with a man. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And she remembered that. She remembered Gabriel's message to her. 
she knew that her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not an ordinary man. He was fully God and he was fully human. And she remembered the shepherds. You remember the story there in Luke chapter 2, how the shepherds were, were met by the angels. And the angels said, look, go right up there. And the Messiah has been born. The Savior has been born. And they came and they worshiped the Lord. And then there was Simeon who met Mary and Joseph in the temple and Anna who met them in the temple and the Magi who came a few years later to worship the Messiah. Mary knew who Jesus was. And I think deep in her heart, she knew that Jesus could do something about this problem. And so with her little indirect language, she said, son, they have no wine. The wine's run out. Now, verse 4 is interesting. Jesus said to her, woman. Now, now we hear that in our American understanding of things. And we say, how crass of Jesus to call his mother woman. Can I tell you, I would have never called my mother woman. <laughs> I might have been rolling across the floor, right? But this is different. It's very different. We read our Lord's response, and it, it literally, it shocks us. In the Jewish context, however, this is a formal response, not an intimate response. Mary appears in only, only two times in the Gospel of John, only twice. And she's never named by name, by the way. She's always called the mother of Jesus. And so she appears right here in this first miracle, the wedding of Cana and Galilee. And you know when she appears again? She appears at the cross. And let me read to you what Jesus said to her from the cross. Remember John the apostle is standing there by her and, and Jesus says to her in John 19, 26, when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that was John the apostle, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And the Lord Jesus, in an act of incredible compassion, was ensuring that his mother would be taken care of after he died on the cross. And the Bible says that John the Apostle took Mary into his home and took care of her for the rest of her life. So when we balance what we read here in John chapter 2, the reference to Mary as woman, with the reference to her as woman at the cross, we, we, we begin to understand that, that it's not out of character at all. It's almost like Jesus was saying, ma'am, ma'am.
And Jesus said to her, woman, what, what does that have to do with us? Why, why are you trying to insert us into this gigantic problem at this wedding? You know, I, I've been around a while and I, I've seen some interesting things happen at weddings. Boy, this is certainly an interesting, interesting thing happening at this wedding, I assure you. And Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with us? So, so what's going on here? How can we get a grasp of the underlying thing that's going on that we don't really understand? Well, let's remember that with John the Baptist's bold testimony at the very initial part of Jesus' ministry, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the gathering of his initial disciples, the min- get this now, the ministry of Jesus is now fully engaged. Jesus did not begin his ministry until he was 30 years old. He was a carpenter before then. And so now with his ministry engaged, and how long would it be? It would be about a three-year ministry. So the time was ticking. The time was ticking. And what Jesus is doing here, he's establishing new parameters for his relationship with his mom, his brothers, and his sisters. You, you see, they must learn that they must relate to him now as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord, as a Son of God. So he's establishing new parameters. And then he said something very interesting. He said, my hour has not yet come. Now, this phrase appears several times in the Gospel of John. Take your Bible and and look at John chapter 7, verse 30. John chapter 7, verse 30. It seemed like every time that Jesus was being ridiculed or persecuted by by, by one of the, the religious leaders of the day, he would say, he said, verse 30, of chapter 7, so they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then look at chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him. No one seized him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And then when you get over to chapter 12, verse 23, there's a noticeable shift. Chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And look at verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this 
hour. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So what did Jesus mean when he said, my hour has not yet come? Well, he, re- he was referring to that moment when he would go to the cross and he would die for the sins of the human race and after three days he would be resurrected from the dead. It's called the glorification of Jesus. That's the hour he's referring to. I tell you this, nobody could seize him until his hour had come. You see, Jesus... At this point, early in his ministry, Cain of Galilee is focused on one thing. Not doing what his mama wanted him to do, but doing what his heavenly father wanted him to do. In John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 19 The Bible says, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. You you see, Mary wants the, the wedding to end without embarrassment. But Jesus is focused on following the heavenly timetable set by his Father in heaven. Look at verse 5, John 2, 5. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. It's almost like earlier here in in, in verse 3, when she said to Jesus, they, they have no wine, it's like she's coming to him as his mother. But when you come down to verse 5, when she said to the servants, whatever he says, you do it, she's coming to him as Savior and Lord. And, and she, she is fading out of the picture in this story. In, in fact, she won't be seen anymore in this story. And all the focus... All the focus that the Holy Spirit is bringing to bear in this story is the focus on Jesus and his disciples and the miracle. You know what she's doing? She realizes she can't control her son. He's under heavenly control. And she trusts him to do what's best in this situation. You know, we get that that situation in our lives, don't we? Sometimes we deal with things that are, are hard and difficult. And we don't know what to do and we don't know where to turn. And in those moments, we've got to learn to trust Jesus and leave everything in his hands. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now it's interesting. 
that at this, this home, this, this place where the wedding feast is taking place, there were six stone water pots set there for what purpose? Purification. The empty water pots and the lack of wine speak of the emptiness of religion. A.W. Pink observed, and I quote, Judaism still existed as a religious system. There were purifications. They had this elaborate way they had to wash their hands. Okay? It was a part of their religion. But it ministered no comfort to the heart. It was all external, not internal. Judaism had degenerated into a cold, mechanical routine, utterly destitute of the joy of God. That's the picture that's presented by these six stone water pots. Now, this detail demonstrates that the ministry of Jesus is about to involve a supernatural, radical transformation of dead religion into a vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus himself. We just haven't seen it yet. Don't overlook the size of these water pots. Each one held 20 to 30 gallons each. These things were big. Look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. I mean to the very top. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. It's interesting here that no one really knew the miracle that was taking place except Jesus Mary, the servants, and the disciples of our Lord. This was not a public-type miracle. Can you imagine what must have been going on through the mind, in the minds of these servants? you telling me we're going to serve water at a wedding feast? Well, you know what they did? They obeyed the Lord's first command. They went and got the water. They filled the, the water pots up to the brim. And then they received the second command from God. By the way, that's the way God works. We want God to tell us everything up front. But sometimes God gives us the first step he wants us to take, and he will not show us the second step until we take the first step in obedience. So they fill them up to the brim. Well, what's interesting here is that Jesus did nothing to draw attention to himself. Jesus did not go over to the water pots and wave his hands over the water pots and make a show. Jesus didn't pronounce loudly, water become wine. He didn't do that. Well, you say, well, how did the water become wine? Because Jesus willed the water to become wine. Right. 
He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to go lay his hands on the water pots. He didn't have to speak in tongues. All he had to do was will it to be so, and the water became wine. Verses 9 and 10. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. Remember, he's responsible for everything. Do you know that if a bridegroom didn't have enough food or wine at a wedding, he could even be sued by the bride's family? Seriously. Serious business here. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus not only rescued the groom and his bride from an embarrassing situation, but the leftover wine, do you remember how many gallons we're talking about here? 20 to 30 gallons each. Now we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. The best wine in the land. So Jesus not only rescued them from the stigma of running out of wine, but he also blessed them with probably the greatest wedding present they had received. Because there was no way they would drink all this wine during a wedding feast. So they had a bunch left over. They could have sold some to subsidize their income or, or, or they could have kept it for the future. It's amazing. In the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. Jesus brought joy to this couple. I'm telling you, that groom must have been clicking his heels up when he discovered that they hadn't run out of wine. I'm not sure he ever understood the depth of the miracle here. Look at verse 11. The Holy Spirit, in verse 11, gives us the interpretation of this story. Verse 11 is not a part of the story. The Holy Spirit comments on the meaning of the story for us. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's what the gospel is about, right? We read about it a moment ago in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He manifested his glory. He put his deity on display for these disciples. At the end of this story, it's only Jesus and the disciples, right? And his disciples believed in him. In other words, their faith was strengthened and cemented. These five disciples who were following Jesus. So what does this story say to us? What does it mean to us? 
I think it means this. I, I think it means that we need to make sure that we catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. We need that glimpse too. You see, we need to see the glory of his resolve. Jesus would not succumb to the influence of his family, the religious leaders who opposed him, or even the fickle faith of, of many who identified with him were not committed to him. He knew his God-given mission and nothing would deter him from Calvary and the cross of Calvary and dying on the cross and shedding his blood for the sins of the human race. Can I ask you a question? Are you committed to his purpose for your life? Are you? Will you align yourself with his purpose? Well, pastor, I'm just sort of doing my own thing. Well, that's not very wise. Maybe we ought to align ourselves with his will for our lives. Maybe we ought to have the same kind of resolve that Jesus had to do exactly what he's called us to do and be exactly who he's called us to be. Let, let me tell you, my friend, I am absolutely committed to finishing well. You should be too. Finish what God has given you to do. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the Bible says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Keep on keeping on. That's what he's saying. If you get a glimpse of his glory, you will keep on keeping on. You'll finish. You'll have resolve. Secondly, if we get a glimpse of his glory, we'll see the glory of his power. His power. Before this moment in history, no one, no one from Adam all the way to Jesus had ever turned water into wine. No one. By the way, no one since that time has ever duplicated that miracle either. The sheer quantity and quality of the wine is staggering to say the least. Some of you are facing a huge challenge. Much like this groom and his bride. It, it could be spiritual in nature. It, it could be a physical challenge. It could be a financial challenge, emotional challenge. And you wonder where in the world can you turn for help? I'll tell you, friend, turn to Jesus. His power is unlimited. Amen. I, I tell you, my friend, if he can change water into wine, he can help you with your physical problem. He can help you with your emotional problem, your spiritual problem. He can help you. Amen. Nothing is impossible with him. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Believe in him and trust him with all your heart. Oh, we need to catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. We need to see the glory of his resolve, the glory of his power. We need to see the glory of his grace. 
Number three is grace. I, I tell you, when you start reading this, this story, the grace of Jesus just saturates the whole thing. You, you say, what is grace? It's the unmerited favor of God. Did, did this groom deserve to be rescued? Was Jesus obliged to rescue him? No. No. It was grace that allowed Jesus to step in and rescue his little hide. Jesus injected joy into this celebration. On top of that, as I mentioned a moment ago, he left this, this couple quite a wedding present. So understand that Jesus is the source of true life. Religion is a cold, lifeless thing. Do you have religion? You ain't got much. You got something that will maybe help you externally, but will never help you internally. It'll never cleanse your filthy heart from sin. It'll never give you hope. In the midst of a struggle. I'll tell you, dear friend, Jesus can do that. I was reading a story about Shaquille O'Neal and, and how he's living with so much regret over the mistakes he made in his life. And it, it's, it's torturous to read what he's saying. It, it's like he has no hope. And I wanted to say to him, oh, Shaquille, I would love to sit down and tell you about Jesus. Jesus will forgive your sin. Jesus will change your heart. Jesus will give you an infusion of hope when the world says it's hopeless. I'll tell you, he alone can quench the hunger and thirst of your heart. He alone can give you true everlasting joy. You know, I got to thinking about this story this first miracle at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And it hit me. Sometimes I'm slow. But it hit me that this is not the last time John would write about a wedding feast. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19... Beginning with verse 5, John wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself. Who's the bride? It's the church. It's the church. 
His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Listen, this world is going to offer you the very best it has to offer first. And after it hooks you, then it's going to get progressively worse. I tell you, Shaquille O'Neal had the best this world could offer. And he's living with a mountain of regret and remorse. I tell you, it's not like that with Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, saves the best for last. You, You see, if you're not a believer, the best you'll ever have it is right now. But if you are a believer, I can look you in eye and tell you the best is yet to come. You have an invita- if you're a believer, you have an invitation to this wedding feast. And you'll spend eternity with Jesus, the groom. And the groom, the Lord Jesus, is responsible for the wedding feast. And he'll never run out of stuff, I promise you. He'll never run out of joy. He'll never run out of, uh, out of grace and, and, and resolve. All of this is available to you for all of eternity. It just gets better and better and better. The best is yet to come. So would you bow your heads for just a moment? I'm going to ask our worship team to come, our staff to come. Remember, John wrote this gospel so that you and I could read it and study it. And we could read these signs and we could read about these miracles so that we would believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, not dead religion, life. Have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you? Oh, I invite you to come to Christ today. Come to Christ. Our staff is here. You can come to one of them and say, hey, I I just want to be saved. I want an invitation to that wedding feast in heaven. Maybe you're here today. You say, Pastor, this is my time. I tell you, that hour that Jesus talked about, our hour is coming quickly. Now, we're not going to the cross, but we're going to die. Or Jesus is going to come again. And we're going to flitter away our day of grace. Now's the time. 
That's why the Bible says today is a day of salvation. Come to Christ today. Our, our group is here to help you. Now, maybe you're a believer. And you know that you're a believer. It's interesting that these five disciples, their faith was strengthened when they saw this miracle, the glimpse of glory. Maybe you need to come to the altar as a believer and just ask Jesus, Jesus, open my eyes. Give me a glimpse of glory so that my faith will be strengthened. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Just come to one of our staff members. Tell them you'd like to be a part of Carville First Baptist Church. Let me pray. You respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. Lord, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this incredible miracle. We pray, Lord, we will not miss this glimpse of glory. Help us, Lord. Help us to obey you just the way the servants obey you, Lord. Let us obey you today. In Jesus' name.